the big boat because it looked safer. The problem was the big boat went to the wrong island, <laughs> to the sky. So uh, I ended up getting off the boat and I had to phone up my boss and say, I'm terribly sorry, but you're quite an idiot. I've managed to go to the wrong island. Hello and welcome back to the Field Reports podcast. This episode we have Tim Carlson, a professor at the University of Oxford. Hi, thanks for being on the show. No problem. My pleasure. Could you briefly explain our audience about what you work on? Okay, so I'm a biologist and I'm interested in both ecology and evolution. As people observed things like drug resistance in insects and um, uh, diseases and um, the evolution of pesticide resistance, people realized that we can see evolution happening in front of our eyes. And because we could see evolution happening in our eyes, that meant we needed to try and link together ecology and evolution. So I try and join those two big bodies in theory. But I also then like to apply the theory to real systems. And one of the systems I've been working on a lot recently are guppies in Trinidad, so tiny little fish. And those are fish where we can observe ecological and evolutionary change occurring over the course of about 30 generations, which for guppies is uh, sort of 10 to 15 years. However, I also work on sort of purely ecological questions and conservation questions. And I've been working for a while in collaboration with the Yellowstone Wolf Project to try and understand what the consequences of the wolf reintroduction has been on um, the ecosystem in Yellowstone. And finally, another project I spent quite a lot of time working on at the moment is a project on human-elephant conflict um, in uh, Botswana, and that's in collaboration with a group called EcoExist. So you work on a wide, very wide range of projects, right? Um, so most of them involve um, both fieldwork and modeling, I guess. Is that, is that correct? That's exactly right. So um, my view is that modeling is most useful if models can be parameterized with field data and ideally um, tested or validated in the field. So, um, for example, in purely observational studies, um, I have fitted models to half a data set and tried to then predict the rest of the data set. Whilst in other systems, for example, like the Guppies and the Guppy project who I collaborate with, we actually uh, try and develop um, models using some data and then design experiments to test the performance of those models. Great. What do you think are the differences in, in these two ways of working or these two ways of um, you know, studying things? So I think the um, I think working at the interface, from collaborating with um, field biologists and also working on the theoretical side and working with theorists, I think um, has many advantages and is is useful for a number of ways. So um, often pure theoreticians like to keep their models very very simple. So they like to have a small number of parameters in them. And they like to ask what sort of patterns can models with very simple parameters uh, uh, predict. But one of the limitations of simple models is they often don't do a particularly good job of, of describing what's going on in real systems. And a consequence of that is empiricists often um, have a small amount of disdain for models because they don't actually capture what the empiricist sees in the field. 
Um, now, however, many empiricists often see the world in a very, very complicated, very, very complicated, which it is, very, very complicated system with lots of interacting and moving parts. Um, and, uh, and they're often right in many ways, but trying to identify which of those parts are most important um, you know, is, is often something that empiricists are interested in. So is it disease or is it competition for food or is it climate fluctuations influencing the dynamics of populations? And I think what we can do um, by working with both models and with empiricists is sort of explore a middle ground where models are not too complex, so we can still analyze them, but they've actually got some of the complexities that um, really interest empiricists who are working in the real world. All right. What actually motivated you in getting into the, your current work? So um, when I was a, uh, a teenager, um, I had a, a place to go off to university and read maths. But then I went and spent a year in Africa, um, living and working in Zimbabwe. And I remember going for a walk and stopping and watching um, a herd of impala and sat there for maybe an hour watching them. And I can remember the moment when I thought, actually, I don't want to be a mathematician. I think I want to be a biologist. So it was before the age of internet. So I wrote to my parents and said, I want to um, hand in my uh, place to read maths at university. And can you apply to universities for me to do biology? I'd already got my A level. And so they did. And I, I went to York. But I've always kept that interest in maths as well and um, you know, have read around it. So um, as I sort of developed my career in um, biology, I, I tended to draw on a mix of, of maths um, and the empirical side, because the best thing about biology, in my opinion, is being out in the field and uh, observing animals and thinking, oh, why is it doing that? Why, why, is, why is that animal behaving like that? Or why is that population behaving like that? So I, I did my... PhD in plant ecology, actually. Um, it wasn't the greatest PhD ever done. In fact, my PhD supervisor said it was the second worst PhD ever done um, after his own. Uh, but then I started uh, a postdoc working on sheep and deer datasets, which are fantastic datasets collected in Scotland. And I started by analysing survival rates. So it was, it, back then it was reasonably complicated statistical analyses. They're now things people do every day very easily. Um, and identified what influenced survival. And I remember thinking, why am I just interested in survival? So then I started analyzing factors that influenced um, uh, reproduction and was looking to see whether it was um, uh, things like weather or intrinsic factors in the population, like density, or whether it was individual attributes like age or size. And then I thought, well, why am I just in, in analyzing, you know, first of all, survival and reproduction? Why don't I try and bring them together to, to, to try and understand the dynamics of population. So that's when I started doing some modeling and, and bringing in um, and developing various sort of models and, and modeling techniques. And then I sort of thought, why am I kind of just interested in one species? Maybe I should be focusing on, on other species. So I began to look at species interactions. But also, um, having worked a lot with people on the sheep and the deer project who were interested in genetics, I became a little bit more interested in evolution. And at that point, I thought, I kind of want to try and understand how ecology and evolution might uh, be linked. So that's the sort of journey I went on. And I moved from system to system, as, as my collaborators often approach me and ask them, I'd like to collaborate. But also, I think it's 
if you stay with just one system for very long, there are many advantages in that you become a real expert in that system, but you lose generality. And I think one of the things I've really enjoyed and I found very useful is to you know, spend quite a lot of time working on ungulates and quite a lot of time working on mammalian carnivores, but then quite a lot of time working and thinking about fish and also, um, you know, uh, having had um, laboratory projects where we worked on bulb mites. And these are systems that other people set up, and I've come in in all cases to collaborate with them. But actually, thinking about different systems, I think, has been incredibly useful and incredibly valuable for me. Yeah, and... and Sorry, that was a very long answer. Oh, that's, that's fine. That, that was very interesting, though. Um, and I see, I see that on your website, you've got many study systems from rodents to elephants. Is that something that um, is intentional? Is that something that you um, just got into, or could you tell us about that? So it's um, it's it, it's partly intentional. That I you know I like to um, try and think about general questions, and I think thinking about different systems is extremely useful for doing that. It's partly accidental in that many people in the group um, approach me and say they'd like to come and work with me, and they work on this system and they're interested in modeling it so um, we will uh, look around for, for money and, and sometimes they're successful sometimes I'm successful sometimes we're jointly successful sometimes we fail of course um, so people um, often come to the group with a system that they're already working on um, how, uh, so it's I think it's a mix of being sort of accidental and um, and deliberate and um, you know it's, but it's not only the systems that are very wide-ranging, it's the questions that we ask. So, for example, um, you know, I have a very good PhD student, Marie, at the moment, who is interested in um, uh, modes of reproduction. And, uh, you know, why is it that all birds lay eggs, or all dinosaurs lay eggs, or crocodiles lay eggs, or turtles lay eggs? Most mammals give live birth, and then you've got various squamates, so reptiles, and you've got various um, Fish, which which uh, some some species that are close to lay eggs, obviously live birth. There are even some species where populations of one lay eggs, and populate, a population down the road gives to live birth. So doing field work and thinking about that is an interesting question, right the way through to people who are interested in um, how wildlife spread diseases and how um, wildlife interact with uh, bacteria through their microbiota. Another good PhD student. Who, for example, in collaboration with the Royal Vet School and Sarah Knowles, is working on a microbiota, so the bacterial composition of rodent guts and whites and woods. And actually, I think you know one of the criticisms people could say is that I'm, an, you know, I'm, I'm an expert in nothing um, and too much of a generalist, but um, I'm, I'm interested in trying to understand the diversity of life. And I think if you're going to do that, you actually want to try and work for a bacteria right the way through high vertebrates. Um, so you've written about your first fieldwork experience in, in in the Journal of Animal Ecology blog. Could you could you tell us a bit more about those stories? So I I, it, I, I suspect this was the um, it probably wasn't my first fieldwork experience, but certainly my first postdoc fieldwork experience. I suspect is what I wrote about. Is this is this when I was going to the Isle of Rum? Yeah. So um, I, I, I finished my PhD and um, I just started a postdoc with Steve Alvin and Josephine Pemberton. I was based at the Institute of Zoology and I was going up to, um, uh, to Scotland um, to do some field work. But it was the day after my PhD viva and I just about scraped through 
Uh, so I, I, I ended up um, celebrating uh, perhaps rather more, um, uh, rather more vigorously than I should have done, um, which meant I had a very um, hungover journey up to Scotland and staggered down to the dock to get on the boat to go to Rum and got on the big boat because it looked safer. The problem was the big boat went to the wrong island, <laughs> to the sky. Yep. So uh, I ended up getting off the boat and I had to phone up my boss and say, I'm terribly sorry, but you're quite an idiot. I've managed to go to the wrong island. <laughs> um, I think things slightly got better. I, I, you know, I, was, uh, I don't think I was much use in the field that trip, but um, um, things have steadily got better over time, I suspect. <laughs> That's good. Um, um, so so could you so when you go on a field work, could you describe um, what a typical day is like for you? So totally, um, when, when I'm in the field. Yeah. Yeah. So it totally depends where um, the field work is. Um, you know, I most of the, my field work now when I go to the field is to meet up with PhD students or post um, postdocs or interns. So actually, a lot of it is going to the field site. Is having a look round, is seeing how the data are collected, and then having long conversations about the work that um, you know they're, uh, that they're doing and what's working and what's not working and what might need tweaking and what have you. Um, you know, back in the day when I was sort of doing more hands-on field work, um, you know, myself, for example, it would normally be with a team, and you know, we would, uh, you know, we would normally get up, um, depending on the system, sometimes that's early starts, and if you're, um, uh, you know, if, if you're um, working on, um, uh, you know, some crepuscular uh, animal, for example, you often have to be in the field relatively um, early and relatively late to see its behavior. Um, but then we would go to the field site, we would collect data, which typically involves catching animals, and the way that you catch them varies. So, for example, when I worked on the sheep and the deer project, the way that we catch animals and they still do, is to um, build and trap down poles and nets, and then you try and chilly the uh, sheep into uh, into a trap. Um, for deer, it's slightly different. We only caught the younger, in the, the newborn individuals, and it would be sitting on the side of a hill getting uh, bitten to death by midges, waiting for deer to go back to a calf that she'd given birth to, and then talking um, uh, uh, talking another researcher, uh, normally Josephine Pemberton or Fiona Guinness, to go down to the uh, deer calf, talk them into where it is, and then um, they would catch it and, and collar it and take blood samples. In the case of the guppies, when we catch um, fish, we go down with teams of interns and we have essentially butterfly nets that we wander up and down the stream looking for the tiny little guppies, which we then catch and put into bottles of water and high calf. Um, with the, the, the deer, uh, sorry, with the wolves, um, catching them is substantially more complicated. It involves darting wolves out of a helicopter and then sending a team in um, on the ground. They, they won't let me dart wolves out being a helicopter because I'd be much more likely to dart the pilot in the wolf. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, but, so it's normally catching animals, and the way that you catch them is very varied depending on what the species is. So, and some of them, for example, wolves and elephants, require specialist skills that I certainly don't have. Right. So, so do you use any kind of technology for all of your work? When you're in field work. Yeah, so we, 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 we do. In fact, technology is becoming more and more important. So, for example, with the elephant project, we have, uh, we're working with EcoExist, we have um, about um, uh, 30, uh, 30 to 40 satellite collars on elephants at any one time. So, those are pretty high tech bits of kit where you're recording 
and the location and the speed of movement, direction of movement of elephants, and it speeds up the satellites and back down. Um, right the way through to we're developing at the moment um, with um, a, a group of collaborators at the Royal Vet School and an engineer called Kurt here in Oxford. We're developing intelligent tracks that um, allow us to um, increase animal welfare of mice and rodents that we trap in the field. And so these traps are designed that we will only catch rodents for um, the what that we need to catch in order to take the sample. If we wish to catch only collect any fecal samples, we catch the rodents. The rodent remains in the trap for about 15 minutes until um, until it will have um, uh, um, uh, uh, done a shit, basically, and then um, the trap will open and the animal will be able to um, leave. So we're developing those traps and we're trialing those traps in the field at the moment in various loggers. And again, so that allows us to catch, collect a very targeted collection of data in a way that past rodent trapping exercises don't allow because you put the traps up and you see what you get. So um, there's the technology developing there. Um, uh, so technology is important. Um, in parts of my career, I've been involved in, in developing it. This is an, 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 a newish project that we're doing at the moment to um, uh, um, develop intelligent traps. And we've also developed tracking devices that allow us to track animals in the field. So yes, technology is important. Actually, technology has not only revolutionized what we, the types of data that we can collect at the, gen the genetic and the, the transcript level, and, um, uh, and the metabolomic level in the lab, but it's also revolutionized the types of data that we can get in the field, both in terms of the sort of dynamics of individual movement, of, of movement patterns of individual animals, right the way through to remote sensing through satellite. So as, as a uh, theoretical and field biologist, how do you think um, academics and science students can um, raise scientific inquiry in general public? I think the, I, you know, I think the one thing that's very clear is that most children love um, stories or love being outdoors. So, um, you know, I, I talk to school children, uh, primary school children, on a fairly um, frequent basis, a couple of times a year, um, describing the questions that we ask. Why is it important in understanding the dynamics of the natural world? How are people changing the dynamics of the natural world? And then I explain about how we go about studying it. And um, first of all, how you pose a hypothesis. So what a hypothesis is, and try and choose an example from everyday life, and then one from, um, uh, uh, from, from biology. And then explain how you might test that by designing a simple experiment. And then you can tell the stories about the data that you collect, because they love that bit, and it gives you opportunity to show videos of uh, people flying around um, catching uh, wolves, for example, in helicopters, or people fishing fish out of the stream with butterfly nets. And, and they very much enjoy that. And then you can tell them what you found out at the end. So you sort of do the serious bit of the, the middle one, you've got their attention, you then show them some fun bits, and then you give them a, a clear message at the end that answers the questions that you set up with. I think that um, it's also, so that's one thing you can do. I think the other thing is, um, that's useful to do is if you see bad science, to shout it out. So, for example, one thing I was involved in was um, the recent, um, well, it was a couple of years, a few years ago now, but the badger trials and uh, the badger culling trials, where the government said they wanted to see whether they could reduce badger numbers in two areas by 30%. 
that's by 70%, sorry. And um, they set up an expert panel, of which I was a member to overview, uh, to, to, uh, to, to take an overview of those, um, of those culling trials. We did, we wrote a report, um, which essentially the government had tried to bury. And so when that happened, I went to the media and said, actually, um, no, this is what we found out. This is what the report found out. So I think speaking up for science, uh, particularly if you see bad science, you see science being abused by um, governments or uh, policymakers is an important thing to do. Okay, um, so um, if you had the power, what would you change in the way science is being practiced? I think what I would, would try to change would be um, actually the way that young scientists are assessed. I think there's too much um, emphasis on the number of um, papers that are churned out early on in careers, and I think there's too much pressure to um, get lots of what have you. The, Scientific breakthroughs come from my experience, or scientific insight comes from my experience, is when you have time to think. And when you actually have time to stand back, or, and I know this often happens in the field, but you know, when you've got time to stand back and time to think. I think one of the problems we have at the moment is PhD students and postdocs in particular um, feel, you know, rightly or wrong, well, I mean, it's certainly wrong that they feel this, but they feel that they have to work very, very long hours, sat in front of the analyzing data and actually I think that's life is creativity I think that um, and I think the only way that we can stop that is we move away from saying okay this person has got X number of papers published in these journals whilst this person has only got Y papers in these different journals I think we need to move to um, actually trying to assess the ability of these individuals to plan scientific experiments to identify interesting scientific questions. Um, uh, it, you know, it's, there's a lot of papers um, uh, out there and we're just increasing that by sort of having this slightly, uh, well, um, this divisive way of um, selecting people for jobs. I think, I think we need to take a, a, a long and closer look at the way we do this and just try and make sure we're identifying most careful scientists and those who are the most imaginative with good ideas. I think that's what I would like to change most. But then who decides uh, what the quality of the work is? I think, it, I think what you need to do, certainly with them, I can only speak for within the UK, um, we have, uh, we are regularly assessed on um, research outputs, which is, uh, is, is scored by um, citation rates and what have you. But if you look, so I think you need to change that. So I think the way that um, you introduce this is you actually change the whole way that universities are assessed in terms of their research performance, at least within the UK. I don't have all the answers you, you do, but what I'd like to, to point out, and I, you know, I don't know whether this is, 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 is strictly true, but people have pointed out that some of the sort of greatest scientists in our fields over um, you know, the last few decades, people like Bob Trivers and, um, and um, uh, Hamilton, it, is that these scientists, if you looked at their publication records early in their career, would not have made it in today's climate. And they have gone on to be the most influential and the most important, um, you know, biologists of their generation. Of course, there are others who have been influential and important, came through, started and, and published a lot. 
But at the moment, we're selecting for one very particular type of scientist, and because of that, we're losing diversity of the type of scientists done, and that's wrong. Thank you very much again, Tim. That was Professor Tim Carlson. I'm your host, Ravindra, and you can follow me on Twitter at Ravindra underscore PN. That is R-A-V-I-N-D-R-A underscore PN. And don't forget to check out journalofanimalecology.wordpress.com for more interesting stories. If you like our podcast, please share and subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.